I'm here. Okay, you're still on Zoom, okay. Yes. Okay, no problem. Thank you. You're welcome. Just waiting for the fellows who are at mass tonight. I thought it was quiet in there. Yeah. It's been a busy time for Cardinal Zolan. The two funerals of police officers. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I was I was in New York today, and even with the tra it was a nightmare traffic wise. Oh. But it was still the most moving thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, I was rushing in today. I was rushing. In. Yeah, it was. It was. It's, it was sad. It was just crazy how how many people showed up and how many police. Yeah. Showed up. It was. The cabin was full. You know, it was uh, quite a tribute to both of them. Man. Yeah. Too, yeah. Homilist for today was the Father Joe Franco, whom I know. He did a nice job. And last week the Franciscan. Did an excellent job as an anomaly for uh, the other uh, detective. Uh, Even the speakers. Yeah. Her, her sister was in Spanish. Yeah. Her cousin. Yeah. I was kind of impressed with the my yeah. new, new police commissioner, or police chief. Oh, the police chief. Uh, the way she came out. She, she, yeah. she seems to be very articulated. Yeah. Also, the inspector. The inspector. Oh, yeah. He is. The inspector was. Last week and this week, he was excellent. Yeah, this week he was. Yeah. Uh, you can tell uh, there are no dummies on the police department. Yeah. I have three relatives in the police department in Rutherford, New Jersey. One father and his two sons are on the force. So uh, I know, uh, you know how every time they go out, on duty, their families pull their breath to make sure they come home. So it's a, it's a special calling, it really is. And last week, you also had the funeral mass for one of my classmates. So he's, uh, he's attending more funerals than doing anything else. But uh, somebody once said to me, uh, you know, when they see these funeral masses, on television, they say, so one person said to me, nobody buries or buries people better than the Catholic Church, because our liturgy is so moving, so comforting, so moving, reassuring, you know, faith-oriented, uplifting. Um, so it was, it was quite a compliment to us. And you can see how moving the whole ceremony was, start to finish all the police and everything there, and they had taps. Uh, you had the uh, pipe band there. It was interesting. I heard the two selections that they played. Of course, they played Mason Grace first. Yeah. But at the end, uh, they had two songs that they were playing as they were beating the coffin down uh, Fifth Avenue. Yeah. Always called Going Home. Mm -hmm. And the other was Hard Times No More, which was... Uh, Stephen Foster song. Struggling over. Anyway, <laughs> but I mean, you couldn't hear when you heard the the drums and the as they were leading the uh, the hearse down. It was uh, 
It just everybody fell silent. Just uh, no music, no no talking, etc. So let's hope we don't have any more for a long, long time. We hope. So like the rest of the class on Zoom thought they were late.
get started. Before the guys came in, you mentioned about the assignment for the homily for those of us who were deacon auditors. Could you talk just a little bit about that, or do you want to wait on that? But it might help us to get ready in terms of you know writing about thinking about what we're going to write about. Right. Uh, what I'm going to do is uh, leave it up to you to pick out uh, two readings for a funeral mass, like we had today. I noticed they only had two readings last week and two readings this week for uh, funeral masses for those. Uh, Police detectives. Uh, so you can pick one old, one New Testament reading, which would be from Paul, and one gospel reading from John. Just go into your uh, you know funeral book, and let's say you were planning a funeral or a family was planning one, and they selected one of Paul's readings there, and then one gospel reading from John. How would you use those? You know, uh, knowing what you learned about Paul and John, what's the basic message that those readings convey? In particular, you have a, a target audience you know, of people who are grieving the loss of someone. Rather than a homily for a Sunday, we have a general audience. You have a specific audience, so it should make it easier to zero in exactly what's the message. You know, why did the church include those readings for among the choices that could be used for funeral masses. They're supposed to address uh, you know, the, the moment, address the immediate need of the, of the families and friends there, as well as the long-term uh, you know, uh, support to their faith. Does that help you in any way, George? Oh, very well. Thank you. Yeah, you know, we, you know, in homiletics class, we've been doing a lot of different things. Um, this this weekend, most of us, I think, are doing baptism for our homiletics. So, um, how long how long would you suggest a funeral homily would be? We've never really talked about that before. My opinion is that no homily should go be more than eight to ten minutes. You don't you lose people's attention span. If you can't say that, uh, one of the best courses I ever had, I was in graduate school. Was taught by uh, Father Joe Leonhardt, who teaches here, uh, patristics. Um, he had us do an encyclopedia article. He gave us the name of some early church figure. And he said, you have just been assigned to write an article on this person's life. 
in 250 words or less. That includes everything from the time and place he was born uh, to uh, the important moments in his life, any unusual events that occurred, as well as any writings he's known for and his, and his uh, importance to the church. I'll tell you, you know, you write something that's about maybe about a thousand words, and you say, there's no way I can get this down to 250 words, but you can. Because everything doesn't have to be in a sentence form. Form. So, for instance, you don't have to say Jojo was born in uh, such and such a place in this year, uh, etc. Uh, you start to realize that uh, born in, born in whatever year, uh, in the town, uh, to Joe and Mary Smith. So you've already included the date of his birth, the place of his birth, the parents, in about 12 words. So, you know, it, it taught us to be concise. And it's an important lesson for preaching. I always say, and I think I've said to you before, people will tell you what they think of your preaching without even saying a word. Uh, I tell this to the guys in the seminary. Uh, when Mass starts, what happens? Everybody looks to see... Who do we got tonight or this morning? And there'll either be a smile or a groan. <laughs> smile says he's prepared what he's going to say. He's going to say it and get down. The other groan is saying he has an idea of what he wants to say, but he's going to be all over the place. And as one fellow who's now a priest told me, he, belongs, he uh, participates in the airport theory, that he goes up and then he starts to descend for a landing but he doesn't land. He takes off again on another tangent. He's up there, and you think he's going to end now, but again, he's off on another tangent. So you, you just haven't thought the thing through. And the best thing to do to find out is you start with some kind of a incident in real life and real world or something, maybe even a, a show that came out. You know, when you're thinking about doing a homily, people could bring up the, the funeral mass of the officers that were killed in the last week or two, if that if that works. And then you come back to it at the end. So you can start off with a story, an illustration, uh, and uh, and make sure that you wrap it up by coming back to it at the end. So we call inclusion, all right? Start off with something. That means that you package what's in between. In between is elaborating what you started out with and your conclusion is summarizing you know, the heart and soul of your, your, your talk, your homily. So, uh, you know, I, I uh, write out all of my homilies. And uh, I usually do about four to five pages double space. Uh, and if it goes beyond that, I go back and tighten it up. I'll say, that's a nice thing for people to know, but it has no real bearing on it. It's just a nice piece of information that I included. And, you know, the talk is too long, so as much as I like it, you know, it goes. So my homily is usually between eight and ten minutes. And I try to keep that discipline. And uh, I think people appreciate it when they know that you've done the hard work, that uh, you, you don't have to preach about everything every Sunday. 
Pick one thing, one of the readings. You don't have to cover all three. I know some priests will say you should, but uh, you don't have the time. So do something well than to, you know, put something that's going to be all over the place. So I may not be here next week. The, the people who run the seminary hear what I told you. <laughs> but uh, that's 52 and a half years of experience. And I look back at the homilies I gave when I was first ordained, and I said, I cringe, and I said, I didn't do that, did I? Well, you know, you should get better the more experience that you have, the more dealings you have with people, the more you are moving away just from simply the book and here in the seminary to a, a balance with pastoral contact with people. So that will uh, help you apply the book stuff to real-life situations. Okay. Very helpful. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Jim. I'll say one thing. There can come a time when you may go over that 8 to 10 minute limit. That's if there's a an urgent situation in the community or something that's happening in the world right now that you may go 11 or 12 minutes, et cetera, that, uh, you know, to explain the intricacies of whatever it is, you know, you may, you may have to, uh, to go a little bit longer. But people understand because you're keeping them you know, wrapped in uh, what you're saying because you're dealing with something that is going on around them, something that's affecting or, or imploding on them, okay? All right. Uh, first letter to Thessalonians. And one of the reasons we look at this letter is we, it helps us uh, see how Paul worked, how he went about converting people, where he met with them, what he said to them, how he persuaded them, and what he did with them once they were converted. So one of the things that Paul has to do is go about converting these Gentiles, these Thessalonians, from their pagan beliefs to a faith in Christ. And then he also tries to deal with the problems that arise in the church after he leaves that community and which compels him to write this letter. In particular, some of the Thessalonians have been led to believe by Paul himself that Jesus was going to return very soon. And it obviously didn't happen. So some of the Thessalonians were upset. Paul had to explain how everything was still going according to God's plan, even though it didn't seem to be that way. We talked about the fact that First Letter of Thessalonians is probably the oldest book of the New Testament, written probably around the year 49, about 20 years or so after Jesus' death. Now, this letter is a little bit different from some of the other letters in the sense that Paul is writing to a community that he has a real affection for, and a community in which there's no major problem, really, at least in comparison with communities like Corinth and Galatia. So as a result, Paul spends most of the time kind of cementing the bonds of friendship he had with that congregation. Remembering the uh, 
the happy memories that he had with them. Uh, just a little bit of background we started last week. Thessalonica was a major port city, capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. And choosing uh, Thessalonica appears to be consistent with Paul's strategy as a missionary. As far as we can tell, he generally chose to stay in relatively large urban areas. And there he would have uh, a greater pool of people to come in contact with and to address as possible converts. Now, how big that pool is, we don't know. But certainly, you'd have the uh, ability to reach more people in an urban area than you would have in a, a backwater uh, town. And we talked last week about how Paul went about converting people to faith. And First Thessalonians provides us with some insights about that. And we said last week, Paul didn't stand on a soapbox in, a, in the center of a town preaching and uh, trying to win people over by his charismatic preaching or uh, you know, persuasive power of his arguments. Uh, we had mentioned before uh, class started that uh, even though Acts says that Paul makes his new contacts by going to the local synagogue, That is only what Luke says in the Acts of the Apostles. And it really contradicts what Paul himself says in his own letters. Paul says that he was uh, you know, converted, in a sense, to be uh, a preacher and a missionary to the Gentiles, not to those who were Jews. Paul doesn't say anything about visiting a Jewish synagogue. In fact, he never mentions the presence of any Jews, either among his Christian converts or among his opposition in towns. Uh, on the other hand, he makes it clear that the Christians whom he brought to faith were former pagans. And what did he do? He converted them from worshiping what he called dead idols to now serving the living and true God. Who is this living and true God? It was the Jewish God whom Paul continues to work, worship through Jesus. He mentions that in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians. For they themselves report concerning us what a welcome we had among you. Are you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven? So in other words, the converts that Paul made were neither Jews nor the so-called God-fearers, those who uh, were former pagans and worshipped in the synagogues but didn't declare themselves as Jews. Now, the question is, how did Paul uh, contact these prospective converts? Uh, Paul, in reflecting on the time he spent with them, he recalls how happy he was to work night and day so he might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Again, that you find in uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. 
you remember our labor and toil, brethren, who work night and day, that we might not burden any of you, or we preach to you the gospel of God. So Paul means that he had been working full time, and he used his place of business as a point of contact with people to proclaim the gospel. So while Paul was doing his work, he was preaching to his customers. So when they come in to have something repaired or fixed, or when they came back to pick it up, okay, you get an opportunity to talk to them. Obviously means also that Paul's uh, work involved manual labor. Luke in Acts 18.3 says that Paul worked with leather goods, leather goods. As I said last week, sometimes it's interpreted to mean he was a tent maker, but the word that's used working with leather goods can refer to a number of occupations involving animal skins. For himself doesn't indicate the precise nature of his work. He does indicate that he's not working alone. He's got companions with him. He mentions two by name, Timothy and Silvanus. So the three of them arrived in town in Thessalonica. They went to pursue con making converts. And while engaged in some form of manual labor, they preached their faith to those with whom they came in contact. Now, as a sideline, I mentioned to you uh, what Paul and uh, Timothy and Sabanus did was not typical of what followers of uh, Greco-Roman religions did. Uh, they were very free and easy. You could worship any god you wanted. Be multiple gods. Didn't matter. So they weren't trying to buttonhole you to worship one particular god. As far as they were concerned, you know, one was as good as another. So Paul certainly didn't model himself on that particular approach. Closer to it would be the approach of the philosophical schools. They try to win converts to looking at, at their particular way of looking at the world. So you have the Stoics and the uh, Cynics uh, were better role models for what Paul and his companions were doing. These philosophers would go out to try to convince people to change their ideas about life. And their ways of living to conform to the particular view they felt would bring you personal well-being. One of the big things that we're saying, people shouldn't uh, invest themselves in, in matters outside their control, like money and health, careers, okay, and some relationships. Because all of those things can go south, and you're not going to be happy. Uh, the solution is to uh, redirect your attention uh, to the things that will bring you happiness, things that can't be taken away from you, such as your freedom to think what you want, your sense of honor, your sense of duty. Okay. Those should be at the root of your personal well-being and the center of a particular concern for you. So Paul and his companions mission with a particular worldview. They were trying to convert others to their ideas. This is like these philosophical schools. They work hard to support themselves, and they refuse to take funds from others. Okay, so it seems as though Paul would set up a small business, small shop, other good shop maybe, 
in the cities that he visited, and it seems to be the case here in Thessalonica. And that would explain a lot of what Paul recounts about his interaction with the Thessalonian Christians in the early days, or day and night while preaching the gospel to them. And like philosophers at that time, they exhorted, encouraged, and pleaded with those who dropped by their shop, urging them to change their lives and adhere to the Christian message. He mentions that in uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 12. No, second, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. 2, 12. Uh, we exhort each of you and encourage you and charge you to lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Like some of the Stoics, he refused to be a burden on any of his, his converts, refused to work with his own hands. Now, Paul obviously didn't get into a deep discussion about his theology with people who were just stopping by his, his shop. Even though he was involved in manual labor, he wasn't an ordinary blue-collar worker. He was, you know, a fairly educated person. Okay, more educated certainly than the people who meet during the course of a workday. Now, certainly the people who were stopping by the shop were almost certainly pagans. They were worshippers of these Greco-Roman deities. They believed there were lots of gods. All of them deserved devotion and worship. No one, one in particular. So how did Paul approach these people? Well, as I say in Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, he says, For they themselves report concerning us what a welcome we had among you, that you turned to God from idols, to serve a living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I know I mentioned this last week. Uh, they turned to God from idols, to serve a living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who is the son from heaven, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. So that seems to have been the core, the heart and soul of Paul's uh, proclamation to those he wanted to convert. His first step was to have them realize the many gods they worshipped were dead and false. And there was only one true God. So he's got to get rid of, he's got to get them to a monotheistic situation rather than a polytheistic, where they would worship one God rather than many. So before Paul could begin to talk about Jesus, first had to win converts to the God of Israel, who is the one creator of heaven and earth. They believed in gods of sun, gods of moon, all these different things. And what Paul has to do is get them to believe, wait a second, there's one God who made all of these things. They are not gods. There's one God who is the creator and maker of all. And he chose people, his people, the Jewish people, and promised to bless all nations on the earth through these people. So basically, Paul begins his missionary outreach by arguing against the existence and the reality of the gods worshipped in the local cults. He 
argued against the existence and reality of those gods. His initial task was to convince the pagans that the Jewish God was the only God worthy of their devotion. That their own gods had no power. They were really dead and lifeless. So that's his first step. Okay. Lay the groundwork. Get, move them away from worshiping many gods to the worship of one God, which was the God of Israel. And once Paul managed to do that, then he started working on them toward his belief that Jesus was this one God's son. Learn later on in the letter that a central component of the conjured faith was the belief that Jesus died for them. Uh, chapter 5, verse 10. And that he was raised from the dead. Chapter 4, verse 14. So after he gets them to believe in this one God, creator of everything, he teaches these converts that Jesus was a person who was especially connected with this one true God. In fact, he calls him the son of God. So now he's, from monotheism, he's moving now to faith in Jesus. He says Jesus has a connection with this one true God. And what's that connection? He's this God's son. And he says, it's, this Jesus' death and resurrection is what's going to put them in a right relationship with God. So you see how he worked from polytheism to monotheism and belief in Jesus as a connection to this one true God that he's now gotten them to believe. Jesus is this God's son and it's his death and resurrection that puts us into a right relationship with this one God. What appears to have been the most important belief about Jesus to the Thessalonians was that he was soon to return from heaven in judgment on this earth. So I just mentioned before, the first reference to this belief is right there in chapter 1, verse 10, where he reminds his hearers that he taught them to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus. Rescues us from the wrath that is coming. And when you read this letter, you not only here in chapter 1, but chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. In every chapter of this letter, Paul gives reference to the return of Jesus. He keeps bringing this up throughout the letter. Chapter 2, chapter 3, 4, and 5, after he starts it off here in chapter 1, verse 10. And also these people in Thessalonica... Uh, are acquainted with the reason that Jesus was soon to return. Why is he coming back? Well, he's coming for his followers to save them from God's wrath. He's coming to save them from God's wrath. So Paul had taught us this only converts a strongly apocalyptic message. Tell them this world is soon to end. 
It's at this end when the God who created this world to begin with is going to return to judge him. And uh, what's going to be the upshot of this return of God and judgment? Well, those who sided with this God would be delivered. And those who didn't would experience this God's wrath. So the world's going to end soon. And the God who created it is going to return to judge the world. And what's going to happen to this judgment? Those who sided with God would be delivered from judgment. Those who didn't would experience God's wrath. Uh, the next thing is, well, the way to side with this God, you want to be on God's side when he comes. Well, the way to side with this God, who is the creator and judge of all, was by believing in his son, Jesus. You're going to be on the right side with God if you believe in his son, Jesus, who had died and been raised for the sins of the world. Jesus would soon return for those who believe in him to rescue them from the impending wrath. So in other words, God is going to come in judgment, but Jesus is going to come for his followers to spare them from the impending wrath. So in general, what Paul is doing here is, in his preaching is trying to convince the Thessalonians to accept such notions as the end of the age, the end of the world, coming of God's kingdom. The need for redemption. The salvation of the godly. So stop for a minute. Any questions? Anywhere near through this letter, but but you can see what he's doing. He's building how his approach is. It's very logical. Now, throughout this letter, Paul uses a lot of apocalyptic imagery. For example, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Paul indicates the end will come suddenly. How sudden? Like a woman's labor pains. She's expecting a child, and all of a sudden, she starts to get the contractions, labor pains. That doesn't know when it's going to happen, but all of a sudden it does. Or that it will come like a thief in the night. He says the children of light will escape, but not the children of darkness. And also a warning that the faithful need to be awake and sober. But as to the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. People say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as travail comes upon a woman with child, and there will be no escape. You are not in darkness, brethren. That day to surprise you like a thief. 
You're all sons of light and sons of the day, not of the night or of darkness. Then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. Always be prepared. So all of these images can be found in other Jewish apocalyptic texts. But put simply, Paul's proclamation was designed to transform the Thessalonian pagans into Jewish apocalypticists who believe that Jesus was the key to the end of the world. So he's getting them to believe, as the Jews did, that there would be an end. But from a Christian point of view now, he's saying that Jesus is the key to the end of the world. He's going to come for those who believe in him and spare them from punishment and wrath of judgment. And that they should be prepared because it's uh, at a time unknown to them. And again, this is something later will appear in the Gospels. You don't have the day or the hour, etc. So the Gospel writers pick this up. But again, you see, here is a, uh, a core Christian belief in its infancy here in Paul that's later on worked into uh, the message of the Gospel writers later on. I have a question. Sure, Lisa. Okay. Um, was there a reason that Paul thought the end times were coming so, so soon? Like, do you think that this was part of Jewish Old Testament? Like, because he kind of got it wrong. But I'm just kind of curious as to where that made Well, it. if you remember what I said last week, uh, uh, when he uh, had that experience of uh, you know, meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, yeah. experience of the risen Lord and then he talks about he believes in resurrection now why those who deny there was a resurrection what is he saying you can't deny it because I saw the resurrected Jesus so if he's resurrected and what is one of the signs of the end times that God would come and he would raise the dead to life so the fact that he experienced the risen Jesus meant that resurrection was happening. Okay. Therefore, you know, what happened to Jesus is soon going to happen to the rest of us. So that's why he would feel it was imminent. Okay? Makes sense. Thanks. But but this is going to be a problem with him in this letter. You know, he's, in a sense, uh, putting holes in his own boat. But we'll show you how. But that's the reason why. And that's why he went around the world like a lunatic, going all over the place. And why? Because he could get out there, never mind writing, get out there and tell people about Jesus. Get them to believe in the risen Christ. Because the time is coming soon when the Lord is going to come back. Okay? And he'll take with him those who believe in him and raise from the dead, you know, those who already died. This is what's happened at the end times. Judgment. Resurrection. So the Jewish apostles believe the same thing, right? The, the Jewish apostles. Apocalyptics. Yeah, in other words, they were also expecting the end times or no? Well, they're expecting the end times, but. Uh, not as urgently? Not as urgently. Many of them, uh, how can I put it, uh, yeah, they believe that the end would come. They, they look for the intervention of God in the world because the world was controlled by pagans and it was evil, etc. The only way that was going to be upended 
as if God intervened in this world and came back to judge all of his enemies and in some way reward those who were faithful to him. That's what you have in the book of Maccabees. You know, God will reward, his reward may not come in this life, his reward is gonna come after, in the afterlife, after the resurrection. So, but they're all over the place. They really, you know, depending on the groups. And you know, like the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, the Pharisees did. So, depending on which group, and it was only yeah, I was to be referring, I'm sorry, yeah. what, after the resurrection, I'm talking about Peter and James and those guys. Were they also of this apocalyptic mindset? I think they were, right? They, they were, but again, um, I don't know if they expected it to happen in their lifetime. We don't get that in, indication in the Gospels. Yeah, it's going to come unexpectedly. Remember Jesus warns in the Gospels, you know, don't listen to people who say, you know, here is the Messiah, there's the Messiah. Just you're not going to know when. So just go about doing and living the way the Lord uh, told you to do. But Paul, Paul seems to be more imminent. Well, the gospel writers are writing 20 years later. So it hasn't happened 20 years after, you know, uh, Paul writes. Right. Yeah, about that time. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good questions. And stop me anytime you have them. Now, what kind of people did Paul convert? We know, okay, pagans. But uh, it seems probable that for the most part, his converts were not among the wealthy and the social elite in town. Although there probably were some from among the upper classes, but they were not the majority. So if that's the case, then the Christians of Thessalonica as a social group may have been somewhat comparable to the people Paul later converted in Corinth to the south of uh, Thessalonica. Majority of people there in Corinth were, weren't well-educated or influential or from among the upper classes. Paul says that himself in chapter 1, verse 26. We'll deal with that more when we get to Corinthians. Now, the people Paul converted most likely began meeting together periodically, perhaps weekly, for fellowship and worship. That seems to have been the pattern of Paul's churches. First Corinthians, chapter 11, 17 to 26. On the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you assemble as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I partly believe it, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Then he goes into, when you meet together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for eating each who goes ahead with his own meal. One is hungry, the other is drunk. What, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Will I commend you in this? No, I will not. Okay, so again, these Christians seem to be meeting to participate in worship and also uh, to celebrate the Eucharist. 
That would explain Paul's decision to write a letter to the church rather than to individual converts at Thessalonica. He's not writing to a particular person, he's writing to the church, the community there. And the community is the group that, that meets together to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper. Most of the historians think that churches like this would have met in private homes or what they call house churches. You have that in uh, Philippians 2. Philemon, too. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Okay, so it means basically, you know, the community is meeting there in your home. We don't have any hard evidence of actual church buildings being constructed by Christians for another two centuries. So there's no church meeting that the church is the community of believers who meet in somebody's house now paul didn't teach these converts there at thessalonica that they had to become jews but he did teach them that the one true god whom they now worship is the god of israel they were worshiping the god of israel but they didn't have to become jews this God of Israel, in fulfillment of his promises, had sent his Messiah to die for the sins of the world. And this Messiah was Jesus, the son of the Jewish God, who was now prepared to return to deliver his people from the wrath that was to come. So one of the uh, urgent messages, of course, is you know, believe that, the, that uh, this God's son, died and rose to save you is going to come back soon okay. in judgment okay. and you should be uh, hopefully be delivered from the wrath to come now in chapter 3 verse 1 <coughs> after Paul and his companions left Thessalonica he says they journeyed to Athens perhaps again to set up shop After a while, feeling anxious about this young Thessalonian church, what did Paul do? He sent Timothy back to check on the situation and possibly to provide additional instruction and support to them. He was a little bit anxious, so he sends Timothy, who along with Sabanus was with him in Thessalonica, just to check on how things are going and maybe you know, give us some follow-up instruction and support. When Timothy rejoined his colleagues, either in Athens or possibly in Corinth, which was their next stop, he filled them in on the situation. It's mentioned there in chapter 3, verse 6.
says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, meaning from you, from your Thessalonians, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. Now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. So he fills them in on the situation. First Thessalonians represents a kind of follow-up letter. Even though technically speaking it was co-authored by Paul, Savannah, and Timothy, Paul himself is actually the real author. Mentions that in 2.18. He says, I, Paul, again and again. We wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. And the most obvious piece of news as we hear that Timothy brought back to his colleagues was that the congregation at Thessalonica was still strong and deeply grateful for the work they had done among them. First Thessalonians, the majority of the letter is taken up by the thanksgiving. It's clear that Paul was happy to write. In contrast to Galatians, where the thanksgiving is replaced by a reprimand. So, the Thessalonian congregation had not experienced any major problems. But one important issue had arisen in the interim since Paul had left them. And Paul writes to resolve that issue and to address other matters that are important for the ongoing life of the community. Now, in chapter 4, verse 13, Paul comes to that serious issue that the Thessalonians, Thessalonians themselves have raised. 4.13. But we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So, right, it's a question pertaining to the events at the end of time. This is the thing that's bothering the Thessalonians. Paul had gotten them ready for the coming of the Lord soon, any moment. Okay, now they have questions. Earlier, he instructed those things about the imminent end of the world, which would bring sudden suffering to those who weren't prepared, like the birth pangs of a woman in labor. So he, you know, filled them with this idea: imminent end of the world, bring sudden suffering to those who weren't ready. He had warned them that they they must be ready. Well, that day was coming soon; it was almost upon them. They must be awake and sober, lest it catch them unawares. This is one of the things he's impressing on. Don't sleep on the job, be awake, sober, because the return of the Lord is imminent. Now, having taken his teaching to heart, Paul's converts were eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus to deliver them from the wrath that was coming. But Jesus hadn't returned, and something troubling had happened. What was that the troubling happened? Some of the members of the congregation had died. And that uh, created a major concern among some of the survivors. 
the Thessalonians had thought that the end was going to come before they passed away. The question is, were they wrong? Because some had passed away and the end hadn't happened. And what was even more troubling was, had those who died missed their chance to enter into the heavenly kingdom when Jesus returned. Because that was what uh, the Thessalonians believed, that Jesus was going to come to take them to heaven. But what about those who died? Did they miss the boat? Did they miss their opportunity? Now Paul's response to their concern in chapter 4, 14 to 17, is bracketed by two exhortations to have hope and be comforted in the light of what will happen when Jesus appears. 14 to 17. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord. It's the word, it's not my idea, this is the word of the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the archangels call, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Where he starts off, don't grieve as those who have no hope. And he gives the message, and then he says, comfort one another with these words. So, at his return in glory, those who have died will be the first to meet him. So he says, only then will those who are alive join with him in the air to be with the Lord forever. So he's assuring the Thessalonians that those who have died haven't missed the chance uh, to be taken to heaven by the Lord. It says, in fact, when the Lord comes, he's going to take those who have died first. And then we who are alive will be joined in the air with him to be with the Lord forever. And you notice you have the mix of eschatology and apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is all the imagery that surrounds the core belief. The core belief is that God will return at the end to judge us, to reward the good and punish the evil. Now, what is the apocalyptic part of it? Well, uh, the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the archangels call, with the sound of a trumpet. Those are apocalyptic images. They have nothing to do with the end of time. The dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive should be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So, very often eschatology, what we believe about the end times, is uh, couched in apocalyptic imagery. The apocalyptic imagery is not a matter of faith. It's the core thing. The end will come, there will be judgment, punishment, and reward. Now, whether it's going to come with a symphony orchestra or 
Jesus coming on the clouds. That that's all to heighten and emphasize the dramatic uh, aspect of the uh, eschatology that we believe in. Now, verse four seventeen, chapter four seventeen says, uh, "And we who are alive, who are left." will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, some modern evangelical Christians use that verse to support their belief in what they call a rapture. Actually, we've heard that term. It's a term that occurs neither here nor anywhere else in the Bible. In other words, there will not simply be a resurrection of the dead or judgment at the end of time. There will also be a removal of the followers of Jesus both dead and alive, from this world prior to the coming of God's wrath. So that's what the rapture is. God is going to whisk all of his followers off this earth before God comes to judge people. That's the notion the evangelical side of the rapture. God is going to whisk us out of this world before you know, any judgment takes place. The Thessalonians are supposed to be comforted by this scenario. Those who already died have not at all lost out. They haven't missed their chance. Rather, they'll precede the living as they enter into the presence of the Lord at the end of time. So basically, whether you're alive or dead at the time of the final coming, doesn't make a difference. So at the end, it says, will all be with the Lord. That is the most important thing. It's the message. As long as that's the comforting thought. Hope things, whether we die young or old, whether we're alive when the Lord comes back in the end of time, or whether we're dead, it's not going to make any difference. The Lord is going to take all of his own with him to the kingdom of heaven. So far, so good. Any questions? I'm hope, hopefully, I'm being logical. But you can follow the trend of thought here, okay? Hoping. All right, now, this passage brings up two further points of interest. The first thing is that it's clear that Paul expects that he and some of the Thessalonians will be alive when this apocalyptic drama is played out. How can we say that? Well, he contrasts those who have died with we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. So he's talking about those who have already died. He talks about we who are alive. The we meaning Paul and all the co-workers and the rest of the congregation. So he believes uh, there's a contrast there. And secondly, Paul scenario presumes a three-storied universe, which the world consists of an up, where God and now Jesus is, a here, where we are, and a down, where those who have died are. So Jesus was here with us on this earth. He died, went down to the place of the dead, 
And then God raised him up to where he is. So, you know, the, the state in the creed, he descended into hell. Right? I mean, it's just, and the word is, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, doesn't convey what, the, what that actually means. It means the place of the dead. Those who have died. Ascended into heaven. Okay, what is he going to do after he goes down to the place of the dead? He's going to ascend to heaven to take with him those who believe in him. Soon he's going to come back down to earth on the clouds, that is, from heaven, from the sky above, to raise up both those who are here and those who are down below, elevating both of them to the clouds to live with Jesus forever. So this ancient way of looking at the world, in which there was actually an up and a down, it's an up and a down in the universe, stands in stark contrast to our modern understanding of the earth, an universe in which there is no such thing as up and down, no heaven above our heads, or place of the dead below. So Paul's way of looking at the world is not ours. So that's not part of our faith. Part of our faith is that it will be, the Lord will come at the end of time, okay, and he will raise up those who have died and been faithful, as long and as well as those who are still alive on the earth, to take him to himself. As John said, uh, you know, so that where I am, you also may be. So you see, in a sense, John, it's echoing a little bit of that Pauline sense of, uh, you know, uh, what happens after we die. All right. Okay, any questions on that? Otherwise, we put this letter to bed. Okay. Let me just sure. explain a little bit more detail what Paul believed and what we now believe. Could you make that, that contrast again? Uh, in regard to the end times, okay. uh, the end times as a church, we call that eschatology. We believe uh, that there's a linear, we believe in a linear uh, concept of history. It's not certain, I'm not going to keep repeating, it's not reincarnation. We believe that the world is going to an ultimate point. It's created at a certain time, there will be an end to it. And at the end, we believe there's going to be a judgment where we're going to be judged on our life. We're not going to be in a second or third or fourth or fifth chances, keep coming back until we get it right. We're going to be judged. And that's why it's important that we live according to the teachings of Jesus and then be ready for that moment whenever it comes. Uh, so our belief is, yeah. You know, uh, that there is an end to this life here. And after this life, there will be a new life with God forever. God made us to be with him. You go back to the Baltimore Catechism. Why did God make it? The love and serve him in this world. Be happy with him forever in the next. Okay, so that's, we were created with a purpose. Death is not the end. Okay, it's transformation from one life to another. 
from this life here in this world to life with God in heaven. So that's what we believe. And Paul is basically saying the same thing, uh, saying that uh, whether you're dead or alive, when the Lord comes back at the end of time, okay, everybody who served him, was faithful to him and believed in him, is going to be brought up to heaven, raised from this earth, either from the ground or from the earth itself, raised up to where God is. So we with him forever. And that's what we talk about. We'll see him as he is. We're not just going to see him through other people. We say, you know, you are images of God or heavens and earth are, you know, images of God's creation. We're going to see God as he is. Not through people, not through the universe, but as he is. No idea, you know, what that is. Nobody's come back to say that we're disappointed either. So, uh, anyway, George, is there any more I can add to that, or is there any? Well, I, maybe I mis- misheard what you said, but did you, when you were describing that up here and down thing, mm-hmm. um, you said that all will be elevated, but today there, we believe that there's an up and down, not as Paul wrote about it. Did I, did I hear yeah. Well, well, they had this three-story universe, up, middle, and down. Up was where God was. The middle is where we are on earth. And down below is where the dead are. There were three three stages. You know, you could, you know, uh, uh, draw a circle and put a line near the top, like the... Uh, tropic line and then the line for the equator and then the tropic of Capricorn on the bottom. The upper part was where God was. And, and again, they, when you talk about the ascension, Jesus is taken up into heaven. And remember the angel, what does the angel say to him? Why are you standing there gaping up in the heavens? But this is their understanding is that God resided somewhere up above where we live. And the dead, you know, you can understand it. When somebody dies, we put them under the ground. Senses that's where they belong. It's the place of the dead. But our universe, you know, we, we don't, God is everywhere. He's not just up. He's here and everywhere. So we don't believe in this three-story universe where God it's compartmentalized up there. That's infinite. Yeah. There's no place, you know, down here or down below. St. John talks about that was the one of the unbelievable things about the incarnation. It's like God chose to come from up there to be down here to live with us. It's one of the amazing things about the incarnation. God took flesh and became one of us lived here with us and the whole point of John is that God came from where he was to be with us so that he could take us from here back up to him and that's in your readings and your uh, funeral booklets etc so where exactly did Paul get the eschatological imagery regarding the call of the archangel the, the sounding of the trumpet it's apocalyptic, not a scandal. In Jewish writings, you have apocalyptic writings, Book of Daniel, Son of Man will come in the clouds. So he takes that all from the Old Testament. Yeah. Okay. So 
Well, his audience would be familiar with that, even though most of them are converts, Gentile converts, but that's the cultural set he's coming from. This would be something that they believed in. Do you think Paul encouraged his converts to read the Old Testament in order to understand his teachings better? I don't think so, because for him, what was most important was Jesus and the message of Jesus, right? You know, if he figured that it was going to happen, he might sit down and explain to them. It's unlike the eunuch on the way down from Jerusalem and Philip hops into the chariot with him, you know, and explains the meaning of Isaiah in relation to Jesus. Paul doesn't go into that, because he's mostly concentrated on the risen Lord. He's making use of his Old Testament knowledge, but it doesn't crop up very often. All right? Okay. What I'm going to do is give you a break now, and then when we come back, we're going to do the letter to the Galatians. Quite a different letter than the letter to Thessalonica. Okay? So how about 25 after 8, okay? Rather than starting on Galatians and stopping on, give you the break now, and then come back and spend the last hour or so on Galatians. Now, the problem itself was quite unlike anything that had arisen among the Thessalonians and even among the Corinthians. And briefly put, this is the reason why the letter was written. After Paul converted a number of Gentiles to faith in Christ in the region of Galatia, Galatia rather, after he visited Galatia and converted a number of Gentiles to the faith, all the missionaries arrived on the scene. And these subsequent missionaries insisted that believers must follow parts of the Jewish law in order to be fully right before God. Now, specifically, the men in these congregations had to accept the Jewish right of circumcision. And now, you can see, you know, initially, what one of the problems is, what did Paul do? He always prided himself that he went where no one else had gone before. He went to areas and churches he didn't go to any place where another apostle had visited and evangelized. His main thing was, you know, that he had gone to uh, a virgin territory in a sense. The faith had not been preached or brought to the people in that area. So now you have him visiting the region in Galatia, and you have other missionaries following on his footsteps, coming there, and telling those believers they had to keep parts of the Jewish law if they wanted to be considered righteous before God. And specifically, what did they have to follow? They had to undergo the Jewish rite of circumcision. Now, Paul was outraged at this proposal. I mean, he just, he lost it. 
Whereas other apostles to the Gentiles may have looked upon circumcision as merely unnecessary. You don't have to do it. It was a painful operation and Gentiles would have no reason to undergo unless they really wanted to. For Paul, the matter was a lot more serious. It wasn't just that, you know, it'd be a nice thing if you did this, but you don't have to. He tells us that for him, the Gentiles who underwent circumcision showed a complete misunderstanding of the meaning of the gospel. As far as he was concerned, for a Gentile to be circumcised wasn't simply a superfluous act. He thought it was, you know, an insult, an affront to God. And it was a rejection of the justification by faith that God had provided through Jesus. of such a practice he says have perverted the gospel and they're cursed by God he says that in chapter 1 verses 7 and 8 I'm astonished he says this in verse I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ they're turning to a different gospel not that there is another gospel but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he adds, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. This is the only letter that Paul does not begin by thanking God for the congregation. He is furious. He's ticked off. Okay. Now, Paul addresses this letter to the churches of Galatia. He begins at chapter 1, verse 2. Paul, an apostle, not through men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Unfortunately, we don't know specifically where the letter was sent. Galatia was a region in the north-central portion of Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. It was a sparsely populated territory. It was eventually linked by the Romans 
more, popu more populous region of the South, which included the cities of Lystra, Derby, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. This region, the north central portion of it, is called Galatia. But then it was eventually linked up with a more populous region in the south, which included those cities of Lystra, Derby, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. The Romans called this entire province Galatia. even though the name had earlier been used only to refer to its northern portion. So to what then is Paul referring when he speaks of the churches of Galatia? Does he mean churches throughout the entire Roman province, north and south? Does it mean churches throughout the entire Roman province? Or is it referring only to churches in the northernmost region? The region inhabited by people who, unlike the southerners, would refer to themselves as Galatians. And the issue gets a little bit complicated by the fact that the Acts of the Apostles indicates that Paul established churches in the southern region. But, as you might figure, Paul himself never mentions these cities, in Galatians or anywhere else. So the Acts of the Apostles tells us, you know, he established churches in those southern cities. Paul himself never mentions these churches. He also claims that he found the Galatian churches in somewhat unusual circumstances. What were those circumstances? He had become seriously ill. And he was nursed back to health by the Galatians. So he got sick and where he had to stay while he was recuperating, it was there that he preached the gospel and converted these Galatians. Paul doesn't appear to have established these churches as he passed through the region, preaching in the local synagogues, as the Acts of the Apostles says. Okay, although we don't know for certain to which churches Paul sent this letter, we do know that newcomers had arrived in Galatia preaching the gospel that Paul sees as standing at odds with his own. And also that the Galatian Christians appear to have been persuaded by them. Somebody following on his tracks preaching the gospel at odds with the one he preached. And then he comes to see the Galatians are being persuaded by them. We can't be sure what these opponents actually preached. All we have is Paul's description of their message. It's clear that Paul sees as the major point of contention the insistence on the part of these newcomers 
that male Gentile converts to Christianity have to be circumcised in order to be fully right before God. Talks about in chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, either circumcision or uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. say to you that if you receive circumcision Christ will be of no advantage to you I testify against every man who receives circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law you are severed from Christ you would be justified by the law you have fallen away from grace but through the spirit by faith we wait for the hope of righteousness okay so he sees as a major point of convention that this insistence on the part of these, you know, Johnny Completely's that male Gentile converts to Christianity have to be circumcised if they want to be fully right before God. Now Paul understands this to mean that a person has to perform the works prescribed, prescribed by the Jewish law to have salvation. These newcomers are saying you have to do what the Jewish law prescribes if you want to be saved. As Paul sees it, this message is totally unacceptable. <clears throat> According to the gospel that he preaches, and this is the message that led the Galatians to faith in Christ in the first place. They listened to and accepted what he preached. And what was that? person is justified or made right with God not by doing the works of the Jewish law but by having faith in Christ <clears throat> yet who know that a man is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law shall no one be justified. As far as Paul is concerned, the newcomer's message completely contradicts his own. He says the person is justified not by doing works of the Jewish law, by having faith in Christ. These newcomers are insisting you have to follow the Jewish law if you want to to be right before God. Father? Yeah. When we see in the Gospels that come later on that this is actually what Jesus was teaching too, wasn't it? Regarding? Regarding the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish law, and he's moving them beyond that to, to love and follow me, believe in me, you know, eat yeah. my body, drink my blood, that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, but he's not doing it as uh, boldly as Paul is doing. Well, it's true. Yeah. yeah. You know, belief in me, you're not just saying the whole law is useless, because in Matthew he says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And as you know from the Course, what he was doing was saying, I'm not taking away the law, I'm just telling you how God intended the law to be understood and carried out. 
when you're settling for the least, the minimum, the law expects more of you. That's why your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. They're just looking to, how little do I have to do in order to be right before God? He says, I'm not doing away with the law. The law is given by God, but I'm telling you, you don't understand the deep meaning of this law and how it should be carried out. Weren't they also, these missionaries that were coming in, also talking about the diet too, or was that not part of, you know, uh, the Jewish diet? It, Paul doesn't mention it. it that isn't really the key to him, but, you know, circumcision, which is, you know, identifying yourself, you know, as part of the Jewish people. They're saying that you have to be circumcised if you want to be right before God. It doesn't talk about, you know, they're saying you have to not eat pork if you want to be right before God. This is, you know, a definitive uh, step you're taking. You can change what you eat, etc. But circumcision is something done that can't be changed. So if you think this is necessary to be saved, then you're undergoing what could be a painful practice. To take that step means that you understand this is important and necessary to be saved. Paul says, what did I teach you when I was with you? You know, it wasn't the law that saves you, it's faith in Christ Jesus. This is going to be a big issue with them throughout the letter. Okay. All right. Okay, so these the message of these newscomers completely contradicts Paul's. Now, it's also possible that these newcomers are questioning not only Paul's views, but even his authorization to proclaim them. And that would explain the opening part of Paul's response in which he vehemently denies that he has perverted the message of the gospel that he received from the apostles who came before him. And those would be disciples of Jesus who were in Jerusalem. Because he says, in fact, his message did not come originally from these apostles or from any human at all. Where does he say this message came from? From God in his direct revelation. It's also possible that Paul's Galatian opponents insisted that their message was truer to the scriptures than his. They may have argued that since the Jewish Bible portrays circumcision as the sign of the covenant, any man who wants to become a full member of this covenant must first be circumcised. So they may be questioning his authority, his authorization. Where did he get this? message is you don't have to be circumcised. He says, it didn't come to me from the apostles, or from any other human being. It came from God in a direct revelation. And also his opponents, they insisted that they were truer to the scriptures than he was. Arguing that the, in the Bible it says that circumcision is the sign of the covenant. If you want to become a full member of the covenant, for a certain size. Now, the basic message of Paul's Galatian opponents is God is totally consistent and he doesn't change the rules. This is what they're saying in Canada Paul. God is consistent, he doesn't change the rules. And basically, they're saying this is the Jewish God 
who gave the Jewish law. This is the God who sent the Jewish Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Sent the Jewish Jesus as the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people. fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. So those who want to enjoy the full benefits of salvation must obviously join the Jewish people being circumcised if they are men. And by practicing the law, whether they are men or women, there's a saying, We're talking about a Jewish God who gave the Jewish law, who sent the Jewish Jesus as the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people in fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. And if you want to enjoy the full benefits of salvation, you have to join the Jewish people by becoming circumcised if you're a man, or by practicing the law, whether you're a man or woman. Were these newcomers, Jews from birth, or were they Gentiles who had converted to Judaism? In other words, that they had become circumcised. In other words, who are these opponents? Are they Jews, born Jews, or are they Gentiles who converted to Judaism and underwent circumcision? Galatians 5.12 seems to indicate that they are Gentiles who converted to Judaism, because this is what he says. In that case, the stumbling block of the cross has been removed. I wish those who would settle you would mutilate themselves. Talking about, you know, know, people who are demanding of this view, you know, they should do the same to themselves. Obviously, if you're a Jew already, you're not going to so he's just saying, you know, if you're insisting on this, then you should have it done to yourselves. Mutilate yourselves. Okay, no matter Paul finds their views offensive both to his person, since his authority is being questioned, and also to his message, since his gospel is being compromised. Well, they're questioning who gives you the right to say what you're saying, and basically, uh, you know, the message is uh, totally different. You have to become a Jew, follow the Jewish law, be circumcised in order to be right with God. Now, Paul goes on the warpath. Okay, he takes them apart. He begins to make his case against his opponents right away in the prescript of his prescript of his letter. That's the opening part. And how does he start this off? Chapter one, verse one, Paul an apostle, not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ 
and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who were with the churches of Galatia. So it says, he's an apostle who has been sent either by human commission or from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So in other words, what he's saying is he either dreamt up his apostolic mission nor did he receive it from any other human being. He's been commissioned by God himself. It's his authority. Now, this self-defense is prompted by the Galatians' acceptance of a contrary message, which becomes clear as Paul moves into the body of the letter. So he's defending himself. He's getting this message, this gospel that he preached them, not from any human, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, instead of thanking God for these churches, which was usually part of that standard thing of a letter, Paul begins with a rebuke. The Galatians have deserted God by adopting a gospel that differs from the one that Paul preached to them. He says, anyone who affirms that different gospel stands under God's curse. Chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Who is he talking about? Deserting him who called you through the grace of Christ. He's talking about himself, Paul. Deserting me who called you through the grace of Christ. And you're turning to a different gospel. He says, not that there's another gospel, but there are some who trouble you, who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let it be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, stands from me, let him be a curse. Now, Paul doesn't indicate what this other gospel entails, but he assumes the Galatians know perfectly well what he's referring to. We, the readers of this letter, only find out later now, Paul begins his counterattack by raising the question of authorization. Apart from what his message is, what authority stands behind it? Who's backing up his message? Did he receive it from someone else and then change some of the details? Paul insists that his message comes directly from a revelation of Christ. So he's saying basically, think about the implications of this if you agree, if you disagree with it. This comes directly from revelation of Christ. If you disagree, who are you going against? God. Christ. God. Yeah. So he says, uh, you know, you know, there's no argument here. 
You can't top the authority that I have. Getting this directly from God, message of Christ. And to establish his point, Paul devotes nearly two chapters to an autobiographical sketch of his life, his earlier life. Remember I said to you before, he doesn't talk about himself much. The only times he does is when, you know, his authority is being questioned. And he has to bring up, you know, what happened in his life, uh, you know, where he is, where he is. So this autobiographical material bears directly on the question at hand, namely the reliability of this gospel message. It shows that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. But have you no brethren, the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the demonstrator's point, Paul recounts his conversion, in which he switched from being a persecutor of the church to being a preacher of his gospel. So it's going to bring up you know, his conversion. Now, to back up what he's saying, he says his conversion occurred through a direct act of God, who he says was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles. Chapter 1, verse 15 there. When he, had, when he, when he who had set me apart before I was born had called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his sons to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So he's talking about, my mission comes from God himself, and my message comes from God himself. So the revelation of who Jesus really was, as opposed to who Paul had earlier thought he was, came directly from God. He's saying, you know, what I thought Jesus was, an imposter, he couldn't be the Messiah, etc. That's what I was thinking before my conversion. Okay. How did I come to think, and I flipped totally after that. Not through a book I read or somebody talked to me, put some sense into me. It came directly from a revelation from God. Father, and, it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that <clears throat> some of the strongest arguments <clears throat> that are made by Catholics even today to defend their, their faith, the apologists, are because of experiences that they had that they know they can attribute directly to God. Um, you know, stories, for example, from converts, right? From you know, from uh, Protestant upbringings, are some of the strongest. Uh, witnesses to the truth because of that the power of the of the conversion right. the problem is and not the problem but the the key to that is uh, you have to be open to that because people you know uh, you may escape uh, uh, in a serious accident where you should have been killed but you weren't uh, 
Uh, I know somebody who was in that position uh, should have been killed. A truck hit him head on, swerved across the road. It was swerved in such a way that he hit the driver's side, not the uh, the uh, passenger's side, not the driver's side. Okay. How did he escape? Well, when I'm back to retrieve the car, the only thing left in the car was his rosary beads wow. on the seat where the passenger would have been. Wow. And he says, you know, a person open to, you know, another dimension says, I was spared by God and his, and his mother. But somebody else said, oh, well, it's because they truck veered at such an angle that you veered at this. You know, they come up with all sorts of rational explanations when the most obvious one was, why were you spared? God was with you. And maybe he's telling you he has some work for you to do. That's a person open, but you have other people who are, you know, just closed to any possibility that there's a divine element in anything. But uh, you're right. A lot of people, their lives have changed because they've had an experience. Uh, somehow God touched their hearts and lives. You're right. Okay. Uh, so I said the revelation of who Jesus really was, as opposed to who Paul had earlier thought he was, came directly from God and for a clear purpose. Why did God reveal himself to Paul? So that Paul could take the message to the Gentiles, to non-Jews like the Galatians. Then he says this message wasn't given by the Jerusalem apostles or by anyone else. I did not confer with any human being nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. Talks about that in chapter 1, verse 16. Did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and again I returned to Damascus. So in other words, all the information about Christ, where did he get it? Christ, Christ himself. Yeah, it wasn't through any, you know, quick uh, RCA program for Paul, you know, that he was brought up to speed. No, he says, I didn't confer with the apostles. So they didn't pass on to me knowledge of Jesus or, you know, the truths of God. So why is Paul so emphatic on this point? It may be he suspects his Galatian opponents have claimed that he modified the gospel that he originally learned from Jesus's earliest followers for the apostles in Jerusalem. And then he's saying, you know, you got your message from the Jerusalem apostles and you changed it. Well, you're being unfaithful to the message of those apostles. If so, then his autobiographical sketch shows that the claim is simply not true. He says in verse 20, before God, I do not lie. What I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now he's really, he's on the warpath. Saying, I'm saying this, and uh, don't you dare call me a liar. Now that's really right in your face. On the other hand, he may sense that his opponents have claimed superior authorization for themselves by pointing to the Jerusalem apostles as the source of their own message. We got it from the horse's mouth, in a sense. 
Paul sketch shows that whatever the source of his opponent's message, his own came straight from God. Paul doesn't deny that he has some contact with the Jerusalem apostles. He admits that three years after his conversion, long after his views were set, he went to visit Cephas for 15 days. Cephas meaning Peter. He doesn't indicate precisely why he went. This is three years after his conversion. In fact, the term that he uses, which is sometimes translated to visit, in verse 18, he says, and after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. The word used, it's translated to visit, can mean either that he went to learn something or to convey some information. It may be that he went to keep Cephas, the chief apostle in Jerusalem at the time, apprised of his actions, just to keep him up to date with things, like reporting in what he was doing with the Gentiles. And some 14 years later, Paul met with a larger group of apostles for a similar reason, to inform them of his missionary activities. So chapter 2, verse 10. And after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up by revelation, and I laid before them, privately before those who were of repute, the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, lest somehow I should be running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. But because of false brethren secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to them we did not yield submission even for a moment, that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who were reputed to be something, but they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows no personality. Those, I say, who were of repute added nothing to me. And on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for the mission to the circumcised, worked through me also for the Gentiles. And when they perceived the grace that was given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles, made to the circumcised. Only they would have us remember the poor, which very thing I was eager to do. So he's saying basically I went up to inform them. There are others who are trying to undermine us, but what happened in the end? Three major leaders offered them the hand of friendship saying, you know, you're good to go. You're on the right track, etc. Only just make sure you remember the poor, you know, when you found your churches. This was his second trip to Jerusalem, and it represented a critical moment for the Gentile mission. You don't get the impression from Paul that he made this second visit because he wanted to make sure that his gospel message was right. That he had any doubts about what he was preaching. But remember, he claimed to have received it from God himself. So he's not, not asking the apostles to verify it. Instead, Paul went to convince the Jerusalem apostles that Gentiles were not required to follow the Jewish law, including circumcision, in order to be right with God or justified. 
talking about, you know, the people were there. Uh, Titus wasn't bound to be circumcised. There were false brethren who slipped in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ. They wanted to bring us into bondage, back into the law. So uh, he met with leaders privately to persuade them of his views. He succeeded without qualification, even though others were present who argued the opposing perspective. Okay, so they laid out their case and Paul laid out his. They agreed with Paul. The important point for Paul is that the Jerusalem apostles agreed with him rather than with his adversaries at that conference. Even though his apostles were committed to evangelizing Jews, Peter and his fellow apostles, they conceded that there was no need for Gentile converts to be circumcised. The Gentile Titus was an example. So Paul could rest assured that they would give his mission their full blessing and not try to undermine it. In his words, he knew that he was not running or had run in vain. See his argumentation there? His revelation comes from God. Uh, he didn't pervert any teaching that the apostles had passed on to him because he didn't meet with them to have anything passed on to him. The teaching he got was directly from God. And also, uh, he's uh, saying if their opponents are claiming that they got it from the apostles, he's saying, I got it from a higher source, from God. Now, Paul provides one other autobiographical detail to secure his point. After his meeting with the Jerusalem apostles, one of the twelve, Kephas, came to spend time with him and his church in Antioch. So Kephas made, paid Paul a visit. At first, Kephas, meaning Peter, joined with Paul and the other Christians of Jewish background in sharing table fellowship with the Gentile believers. So they used to eat with the Gentiles, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, facing the fearing the circumcision party. But the rest of the Jews acted insincerely. So even Barnabas was carried away by their insincerity. But when I saw they weren't straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves who are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet who know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law shall no one be justified. So he's just saying that, you know, Cephas and Peter had no problem uh, eating with uh, Gentiles. and They were not following the Mosaic dietary laws. He's saying all of a sudden other Jews who did believe in the Jewish law, and they came along, he kind of left that group that he was eating with to join them, eat like a Jew. He was eating like a Gentile first, 
when some Jews who maintained the Jewish ritual laws, they came, he went over to them and acted as if he was part of their group, favoring them. So the representatives of the Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, arrived on the scene, Kephas withdrew from fellowship with the Gentiles, and the other Jewish Christians joined with him. So Paul saw this withdrawal as an act of hypocrisy and openly rebuked Kephas for it. Paul's view, Kephas had compromised the earlier decision not to compel Gentiles to obey Jewish laws. Now, just as a side note, um, okay, so far, let me stop. Is everybody following this line of thought? Just as a side note, some scholars have different opinions about what this conflict was all about between Kephas and Paul. We can assume that eating with the Gentiles somehow required Kephas and his Jewish Christian companions to violate kosher food laws. If you're eating with Gentiles, they weren't concerned about not having pork or anything. They may have thought that this was acceptable as long as they gave no offense to other believers. But when the representatives of James, Jewish Christians who perhaps continued to keep kosher laws, when they came to town, Kephas and his companions realized they had to decide with whom they were going to eat. They chose not to give offense to the Jewish brothers and sisters, and so ate with them. That's what some of the scholars think that, you know, they just didn't want to scandalize fellow Jews, so they, uh, you know, just switched tables in a sense. Now, for Paul, this was an absolute insult. Because it suggested there was a distinction between Jew and Gentile before God. Whereas the agreement that had been made in Jerusalem maintained there was not. Jew and Gentile were in on an equal footing before God. And so any attempt to suggest Jewish superiority was a compromise of the gospel. So in other words, Jew and Gentile were you know, on equal footing, any attempt to suggest that Jews were superior to the Gentiles compromised the gospel. It's told, told, Paul was told later this, you know, Jew or Gentile, Greek or Jew, servant slave, it was that comparison, because there's no distinction. Okay, we don't know the outcome of this confrontation, in part because we never hear Kephas' side of the argument, you hear Paul. But Paul's narration of the incident is important because it introduces the issue that this letter is ultimately about, namely the relationship of Paul's gospel message to the Jewish law. How does what Paul preached relate to the Jewish law? At this stage, Paul begins to mount theoretical and scriptural arguments to show that the Jewish law had no role in a person's right standing before God. So as far as it comes to being right with God, being pleasing to God, the Jewish law really had no role in deciding that. As a consequence, his opponents in Galatia are wrong, and only to doubt his authorization, but also to pervert his gospel. And what was the basic issue here? Well, Paul begins to express his views forcefully 
in chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. We ourselves, who are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners, yet who know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law shall no one be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we ourselves were found to be sinners, is Christ then an agent of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again those things which I tore down, then I prove myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, die to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, and Christ died to no purpose. So, he says, even as a good Jew himself, he has come to realize that a person's rights stink justification of righteousness before God doesn't come through works of the Jewish law. It comes through faith in Christ. And he closes that passage. They say, if a person could be made right with God through the law, then there would have been no reason for Christ to die. <clears throat> if it's by keeping the law, why did Christ die then? If the law can do what, you know, he claims he can do. So according to Paul, not only is this the right way to understand the law, it's also the message that the law itself teaches. Now that he has come to grasp this message of the law, Paul can say that through the law, I die to the law. To paraphrase Paul, try to make that a little bit clearer, we're saying through the correct understanding of the law that the law itself has provided, I have given up on the law as a way of attaining a right standing before God. And once the law is abandoned as a way to God, then no one should pretend that it affects one standing before God. Because now if you understand that you can't, the law can't justify you before God, you abandon that as a way to God, then you shouldn't be building it back up. It's wrong to build up the importance of the law for salvation once his importance has already been torn down. Don't you understand that the law can't make you right before God? And why are you building that back up as the way back to God? The matter is significant because the Galatians, who were former pagans who converted to faith in Christ, have begun to adopt the view that Paul opposes. What's that? Namely, that doing works of the law, in particular here circumcision, is important for one standing before God. Now, Paul is like beside himself. He can't believe they are thinking that way. He says to them, chapter 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Did you receive the Spirit by doing works of the law or by believing what you heard? Meaning for me. So, chapter 3, verse 1, that's how he starts. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. 
Let me ask you only this. Do you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by hearing the faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun with the Spirit? Are you now ending with the flesh? Do you experience so many things in vain? It really is in vain. Is he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you? Do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, what's the problem with Gentiles keeping the law? Paul claims that those who do not live by faith, rather by the law, namely those who try to attain a right relationship before God by keeping the law, these people are subject to God's curse rather than his blessing. No matter what their motivation or what their desire is, they, they are cursed. It says, on the one hand, the Torah itself curses those who do not obey all the things written in the book of the law. Chapter 2, verse 10 says that. Curses those who do not obey all the things written in the book of the law. Yeah, it's 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no man is justified before God by the law. For he who through faith is righteous shall live. But the law does not rest on faith. For he who does them shall live by them. Now, again, think back of what we talked earlier. Paul doesn't explain. Uh, he says, on the one hand, the Torah itself curses those who don't obey all the things written in the book of the law. Paul doesn't explain why everyone is automatically put under this curse. But it may be because, in his opinion, no one ever does obey all the things written in the law, as he indicates in Romans 3, 9 to 20. And we talked in the beginning uh, in the introductory material about the fact that uh, why did Paul consider himself faithful to the law? Is that he kept every law? No. No. But when he failed... Sacrifices. Yeah, he made sacrifices because the law said when you fail, you have to do it. So... He tried to keep the law. When he failed, he kept the law by doing the sacrifices. So, in his opinion, no one ever does obey all the things written in the law. The law itself demonstrates Paul's point, since a good portion of the Torah is devoted to describing the sacrifices that had to be performed by all Jews, even the Jewish high priest, to atone for their sins when they violate the law. If a person must obey all of the things in the law or suffer its curse, and the law itself indicates that no one can do so, where does that leave us? Clearly, everyone who tries to obey the law stands under the curse that the law itself uh, pronounces. You follow the logic? Right? So the law is supposed to keep it. If you're going to say the law is your way to God, 
You're going to fail. The law understands you're going to fail. You provide sacrifices. When you fail. When you fail. So the law itself only tells you what you do when you fail. It doesn't, you know, bring you to uh, righteousness before God. Furthermore, the law cannot place someone in a right standing before God because the scriptures indicate that a person will find life through having faith. He quotes there the book of Habakkuk. Carrying out the law, though, is not a matter of trusting God. Faith. It's a matter of doing something. That's what the law says. That's where the Pharisees thought by, by giving tithes, instead of by doing things, they would make themselves right before God. You know, that wasn't true. It was a sinner in the back throwing himself on the mercy of God. That was declared righteous. He wasn't, it wasn't any works that he was appealing to. It was on the mercy of God, his faith that God's mercy would save him. So carrying out the law is not a matter of trusting God. It's a matter of doing something work. If faith is the way to life, then doing the law will not satisfy that requirement. Only faith, like the faith of Abraham, the father of all believers, not of the Jews only, will put one in a right standing before God. Okay, the next question. Why then did God give the law in the first place? If it was going to give you to the right standing with God. If practicing the law doesn't put a person into a right standing before God, and it was never meant to do, so why was it ever given in the first place? Paul answers that in chapter 3, verses 19 to 29. Okay, it's an answer that posed difficulties for interpreters over the years. It's best to understand the comments he makes here to mean that the law was given to provide instruction and guidance to the Jewish people. Was to inform them of God's will and keep them in line until God came to fulfill His promise to Abraham to bless His offspring. It says that in three sixteen. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say and to offsprings, referring to many. We're referring to one and to your offspring, which is Christ. This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterwards is not another covenant previously ratified by God to make his promise void. Basically, he says that the law was given uh, to the Jewish people uh, to provide instruction and guidance, to inform them of what God wanted in his will, and to keep them in line until God came to fulfill his promise to Abraham to bless his offspring. So, in a sense, he called the law a disciplinarian until the arrival of Christ. It was something that made sure that children kept on the straight and narrow until they reached maturity. No point was the law meant to put a person into right standing before God. He couldn't do so because justification comes through faith, not action. So it was mostly, basically, to keep them on the right track. And to help them live life well. It wasn't to put them in a right standing with God. Another issue that he brings up is who are the true descendants of Abraham? Who understands that Jews and Gentiles who are faith like that of Abraham are Abraham's true descendants? 
Abraham justified in the book of Genesis by his faith. He believed in the promises that God made to him. And because of his faith in God, he was justified. He was made right with God. Okay? Uh, so Paul says, Abraham's true descendants are those who have faith like that of Abraham. Not the unbelieving Jews or simply his physical progeny. So it's not direct you know, physical descent from Abraham that makes you a child of Abraham. It's having faith like Abraham that makes you a child of Abraham. And this perspective is clear in the allegory that Paul gives in chapter 4, verses 21 to 30. The allegory represents an original and intriguing interpretation of the story of Genesis 21. In Paul's view, Abraham's son, Isaac, who was born of the promise, represents the Christian church, namely all those who believe in God's promise. While his other son, Ishmael, born of the flesh, represents Jews who don't believe in Christ. So Christians are really descendants of Abraham's son, Isaac, while the unbelievers are descendants of uh, his son, Ishmael, who was born of the flesh, represents Jews who don't believe in Christ. So in other words, those who have faith in Christ are the legitimate heirs of God's promise. Unbelieving Jews, on the other hand, are children born into slavery. Since Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, was a slave. Those who admit to the Jewish law, apart from faith in Christ, submit to a yoke of slavery. Well, those who follow the law, they're committing, committing themselves to a yoke of slavery. They correspond to the son of the slave woman. Those who do have faith will never submit to this yoke. So his take on this is Jews are not the children promised to Abraham. Christians, or the Jews or Gentiles, are. Let me just stop here. This is one other point that I'll finish up with next week. Uh, next week, we'll also look at letter to the Philippians. And then we'll go into 1 Corinthians. All right. We've got a mental enema tonight. All right. Any questions? You can always email me if you have any questions during the week. If you're wondering about your paper topic, just drop me a note on email, okay? All right. Okay, be safe. Those of you on Zoom, you're home already. The rest of you, just be safe. Watch out if you're going out the front steps, they're icy. Okay. And you have to ramp on there, so you know, better use the ramp. It's just that water had fallen down, and now the temperatures are dropping. Yeah. I noticed that when I was coming in, so. Okay. Here's the words of the lies. Your foot right home. Thank you.